Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast for Monday, June 15th. My name is Greg Brady. I'm in for Bill this week. We covered a lot of ground on the podcast today, including the shootings that drew so much of our attention and concern. Sadness and anger over the weekend, too, both in New Brunswick and in Atlanta, Georgia. We talked to Alan Cross, the 25-year anniversary of Jagged Little Pill, Alanis Morissette's unbelievably successful Transformation album, her third album overall. It's all coming up on the podcast today. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As Atlanta is raging with anger over this police shooting on Friday night. And this is where we're at. This is going to be a long, long process. It is. and But it was so disconcerting Saturday to wake up, find out about the shooting in New Brunswick, find out about uh, the shooting at the, you know, at the Wendy's in Atlanta on Friday night. And then the response was predictable. I saw a city councilor who was protesting and I admire him for doing that Saturday. He was out with, you know, with Atlanta residents, some of the people who would have voted for him, some of the people who might not have voted for him. And he said, I don't condone this, but I understand it. And that's where I am with this. Uh, that's where a lot of people should be with this. We're, we got to be ready to have uncomfortable conversations. We got to be ready to do more than, um, you know, the virtual virtue signaling. We got to be more than, well, I'm going to put a black square up on Instagram. And that shows how much I care. Yeah, you better be doing something in two or three weeks. And you better be doing something in six months or a year. Because um, problems like this uh, didn't get created overnight, and they're not getting solved overnight either. Our next guest, rather remarkable uh, young man, he's a student council president at Chaminade uh, College School, 17. And I read about him in the Toronto Star, uh, a great piece that uh, Evelyn Kwong wrote, uh, and he's kind enough to join me now because he was telling his story on the weekend. Emma- Emmanuel Adeboyega joins us now on uh, 900 CHML. Emmanuel, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me this morning. Totally. I'm not cut. I'm not cutting into your online learning. I want to make sure. Have you Have you finished <laughs> your your school year already? Is everything done? Are you writing exams? Where are you at? Uh, we just finished up, finishing up a um, couple of ISUs, but we're done in about a week. So you nervous about exams? I, I I used to have the cold sweats, couldn't sleep during exam season. How about you? Well, exams have been canceled, so that's a huge <laughs> relief. So um, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, your story's rather remarkable. You you sat down, obviously talked with uh, with Evelyn, and um, and it's really stark. And I, I think your story about the Halloween night when you're in grade six, um, yeah. I, I will tell you, it's something that many of our listeners, myself included, um, wouldn't have had a fear about, wouldn't have had to worry about. That's a really early education. You were stopped by the police uh, for suspicion of robbery, and Halloween of all nights. Obviously, Emmanuel, people are out and about. Uh, there's there's a there's a higher police presence, but people are expecting you know people to come up their driveway, knock on the door, and give out candy to people. Your story your story re- resonated with a lot of people because that that's not how how it happened for you is not how Halloween should go. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's something that it's it's clear that there's a problem in the system. So. Um, I'm glad I was able to share my story and inspire others to speak up for change. So what are you seeing here over the last few weeks? These uh, I mentioned it in, in uh, um, as you were patiently waiting. These are conversations yeah. we have to have. Many of them are long overdue, but we got to make sure it's meaningful. We got to make sure this wasn't just a, a two week period where where, you know, a bunch of people said how much they care and nothing changes. Right. Yes. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a progressive process. 
um, things are being said right now. We shouldn't let that die down. And I'm glad to see celebrities and people that have power starting to speak up against something that's been a situation for many, many years now. How f- how far back do, have you looked in terms of history, in terms of research? You're obviously well-spoken. You're obviously well-read. And, and how how long have you looked back in terms of uh, history? Like, I remember writing papers on Martin Luther King. The Rodney King beatings happened when I was in university. We would talk about that in, in lecture halls. What about for yourself? Of course. Um, history classes, of course. You always talk about Rosa Parks, um, Martin Luther King, of course, and people that have made huge impact in the black community and how they're so exalted today for the, the impact they made for us. And it's kind of like we're going back to the to the way things were before these impacts were made for the black community. So I guess we kind of have to stand up again and be people like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King who stood up for, for things like this, racism, um, discrimination and stuff like that. So Man. I'm glad I was able to speak speak up on things like that. Emmanuel Adeboyega is our guest. He's uh, student council president Chaminade uh, College School and joining us on the Bill Kelly Show. My name's Greg Brady. Do you look and say, um, if I said to you, this is how I feel about the police. I, I have a level of distrust. I have a level of trust. I have a level of respect for the difficulty in the job, but, but also th- there's something broken and fractured in the relationship that needs to get fixed. How, how would you sum it up? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, of course, it's not. We don't have. We can't generalize what's going on. The fact of policing and stuff. I've seen both sides of the the law, the policing department. I've worked with great detectives. Um, so I've seen both sides. I've seen the racial side. I've seen the the disc, dis, discrimination in certain in certain police officers, and I've also seen the good part. I've seen people who are dedicated to their job, and are not. Um, they're not discriminating in any way. So um, it's, it's really, um, I think you have to get to the core of, I think it starts with, um, where um, police officers are being trained or how, the, or how people are being picked to represent the police in force. I think that's, where, that's mm-hmm. where the real problem is. That's the root of the problem. Because of course, these people, that, um, these people in the force that, that could be racist or, dis- or show discrimination in one way or another, they're already in the force, so I think it starts from the real roots of of deciding who gets into the police force and represents the body of the police. Well, it's funny you mention that, uh, Emmanuel, because I know I know a couple of police officers intimately. I, I really try and keep my circle uh, clean of people. I, I'll just put it this way: I have a really low tolerance and, and patience for uh, for ignorance, and and uh, racism falls right in that. But I'd say about them, they're like it's frustrating because we're doing our job. But some of our colleagues aren't. And I, my message to them, and I think a lot of people's message the last few weeks is it's got to change from the inside, man. You, you're going to have to you're going to have to speak up. You, you can't fix anything. Uh, it's like when you got a problem with your house, somebody's got to come in your house. Generally, they can't fix it from the outside. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad I'm glad to see um, a lot of police officers already starting to speak up against things like that. Discrimination, ignorance, not not only to racism or or there's other kinds of discrimination going on, but racism is something that that's become a big subject in society today, as of this very point. For your generation, when you look at this happening now, um, you know I'm in my mid 40s, so a, a lot of the the die has been cast and a lot of the history has been written. Are you 
positive about where we can go in the next few years with this? Or, you know, do you worry? Do you worry we are too too fractured and, and it's it's going to be a really, really difficult task to get all of us on the same page here about, about equality? Yes. Um, I think it's going to be a, a difficult process because I think a lot of people are ignorant. A lot of people are not willing to learn. A lot of people are not willing to get themselves um, understand the facts of, of what is going on. People are not willing to read, learn, listen to podcasts, get educated. People are not willing to do that. So I think the younger generations need to um, step up because um, they haven't been led by great examples. So they have to step up, get educated, learn, listen to podcasts, see what's going on, speak up about it, and let their verse be heard. Are most of your friends willing to do that, or do you look and say it's it's difficult? You you decided to be active. You decided to be in student politics. You decided to be an athlete. There's there's people that either don't have the um, ability to do that or don't have the desire to do that. And, and, and as you'll find, and you've probably found it already, life life's a very evolving circle. Nobody's the same person for for very long in their existence. How do you have people that are in your circle that you want to you want them to care more? You want them to be more active about it? Yes, there are people in my circle, of course, that care a lot. They're really passionate about things like this. They speak up about it. They read, they read um, articles, listen to podcasts, um, try to be active in, in this specific situation of of racism or discrimination or whatnot. But it's also that um, that bunch of people where they're ignorant. They don't. They're not willing to learn. I think that's where people like us, where we're willing to learn and educate others. That's where we play a part and encouraging those people to learn, to stand up, and to speak up. You've got a tremendous uh, sense of leadership about this, and, and I can't thank you enough for coming on. Let me ask you about sports. Uh, I mean, this is this is a struggle, right? This was supposed to be a big, big part of your year, and, and it all yeah. goes sideways in uh, in mid-March. What are you, let's talk about, about COVID-19. What are you What are you hopeful for? What are you still able to, to do right now to stay active? Yeah. Um, I'm definitely hopeful to have my um, final season not taken from me. Um, that's 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 something I, I really valued and something I was I'm really looking forward to. So um, I'm lo- I'm really look I'm, I'm I'm right now I'm I'm working on myself training, um, the best I can do. Of course I can't be very close contact with my coaches, but they're reaching out to me, making sure I'm doing well, eating well, staying healthy, and be ready for the next season if it does happen, which I'm really hoping it really really does happen because. I've, I've been something I've been looking forward to because we're currently champions, and I'm, I'm looking forward to keep that thing going. I hope it does. You're uh, an impressive young man. Thank you very much for doing this and uh, and and for for being a real real leader and being real honest about your uh, your own experience, Emmanuel. I loved having you on today. Thanks again for the time. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. You got it. Emmanuel Adeboyega goes to Chaminade College School, uh, and he's the school, uh, Chaminade College, I should say, and he is the school president there. I really enjoyed that chat. Uh, You can see, by the way, uh, the story in the Saturday Toronto Star from the weekend. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking about systemic racism in police forces. We've been talking about it in the United States, but we've also been talking about it in Canada. And the death of a uh, First Nations man shot and killed by the RCMP Friday night, where, where there's still a lot to be determined, has raised more questions. It's raised more concerns. And it certainly had a negative impact on uh, on a community that wants to wants to trust its law enforcement officers. And many do. 
but some do not. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome in, we thank him for the time, Tom Bateman, who's a reporter and photographer with the Times and Transcript in uh, one of Canada's great cities, Moncton, New Brunswick. Tom, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hey, good morning. Yeah. What has, uh, what has the last uh, period of time uh, been like, really, since the reaction to this Saturday? Um, it, it must be a community really torn apart uh, after it's been a, a difficult spring to begin with. Yeah, yeah, it has. And, and it's, I think it's important that it comes, you know, only days after another Indigenous woman uh, was, was killed by police uh, in another place in New Brunswick. And, and New Brunswick isn't a, isn't a big place. Uh, and, and this this really doesn't doesn't happen here, and and so for the two the two events to happen in sequence, uh, I think shocked a lot of people, especially people uh, on on First Nations communities and people close to Indigenous people and and the Indigenous communities themselves. Yeah, eight days difference uh, between the the death of Chantel Moore and the death of Rodney Levy on uh, on Friday night. Um, these police, uh, the, the police officers involved, have any been uh, placed on leave? Have they been placed on uh, admin leave or or suspended with or without pay right now? I don't know if you got that, Tom. Do we still have Tom? Oh, hey, sorry. Yeah, that's I okay. Cut out there. That's okay. I, I was just asking about the status of the uh, of of the police that were involved on the call mm-hmm. that night. Have they been placed on leave or are they still working? Yeah, in the case of the uh, the Edmonton police officer who was involved uh, in that incident, I know he's. He's on leave. Uh, I'm not sure if, if those details have been have been uh, put to the public yet about about the members in the, in the shooting in, in Sunny Corner near Miramichi. Um, we know the RCMP has stepped back from the investigation uh, and, and handed it over to the the Independent uh, Investigations Bureau from Quebec, who is who's, you know conducting their their investigation into what happened, and 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 it's through them that we'll learn. I think more particulars hopefully uh, at some point yeah tom bateman's joining us uh on the bill kelly show my name is greg brady times and transcript in moncton new brunswick um so he's checking in with us from there the 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 police have only suggested right now through spokesman that um this was an act if you will of self-defense uh that the tasing uh they tried to subdue Mr. Levy with a taser that did not work, uh, and he had uh, he had knives on him, or at least one knife, and and was making a movement towards the police. Do do we know any more than that? Well, well, we heard a lot more from from people in Metapanagia First Nation, where where Rodney was from, who said that he was uh, he was an invited guest at the home that he was at, the home of a of a pastor of a church uh, in the area, and, and Rodney had some familiarity with this. He was a member of the church mm-hmm. and, and he was, he was an invited guest for supper on, on Friday night there. Um, and this is something that the pastor confirmed uh, yesterday. He put out his own statement saying that, yes, he was a member of our church and he was, he was a guest of our home. He ate with the family that night. We really don't know um, what happened between, you know, those two incidents or how they're related um, but, but I think that's, I think that the difference in, in those two kind of accounts, uh, helps explain where some of this distrust is, is coming, uh, from, from people who loved Rodney and they're, they're grieving him now. Yeah, the, no, that makes complete sense. It's, it's really unlikely, isn't it, Tom, that we're going to get, um, video footage. There's, there's not body cameras. There's not, we, we just happen to get the, the footage obviously of, uh, of the chief, in Alberta, um, in and the the alleged assault there uh, in March, um, but this 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 strikes me as a case where 
there's really an unlikelihood that there's going to be video given it's it happens inside a residence as opposed to from a from a car yeah yeah and i and, and actually yeah like it's it's you know maybe there's something caught on a dash cam um you know we haven't been told definitively yet one way or the other mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a really rural area um you know it's it's not there wouldn't be you know cameras like there would be in in other settings or more urban settings for sure and finally, the, the so there's going to be an independent body. There's eight investigators coming in from uh, the province of Quebec. I, hmm. That's that's interesting to a lot of people. Explain to our listeners why um, that's happening and that New Brunswick does not have their own uh, police, uh, you know, o- oversight group or a watchdog group to uh, to handle a situation like this. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think uh, in, we've seen in, in previous incidents of, you know, allegations of wrongdoing or, or civilians being injured in, during their interaction with police. Uh, we, we often bring in the, the Nova Scotia, uh, in the, you know, independent team. I think they're, they're fully engaged with, with, with the shooting there. Uh, and we've also seen teams from Manitoba come in. I believe this is the first time uh, the Quebec team has been, been been brought in to conduct this investigation, and as you said, it's because there is no team in New Brunswick. There's been some discussion uh, from the provincial government here about maybe an Atlantic-based team uh, that could that could be created for this sort of thing. Um, but but yeah, and and it's kind of problematic. It's something that that uh, people I talk to on the weekend are, are frustrated with in Metapanagia. They say, well. You know, there there might be language barriers on top of the cultural barriers. We don't they're not familiar with these people. These people aren't familiar with them, and 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 they and people pointed out to me that they they don't have a, a record of, of of really bringing any disciplinary action against officers who they investigate in their own province. And and so, you know, I think the chief put it to me is it's it's cops investigating cops. Yeah. And and on top of the distrust that's already there. Um, you know, I, I really wonder how people will will read whatever report comes out. Yeah, no, there 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 has there without the video, there has to be a you know a, a trust factor for for the community and and law enforcement to go forward. Tom, thank you very much for uh, filling in some of the blanks here. I, I greatly, I know you've been busy. I greatly appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Tom Bateman's a reporter with the Times and Transcript in Moncton, New Brunswick. And look, you know, my my thought on it, um, that you have to intervene in a crisis. There was a call. This wasn't something random. Um, this gentleman was, there was a concern and a call for a reason. Should he, should he be dead right now? I'd almost say certainly not. But we're going to find out more about it. And and all we want to do, you you'd want to do this if you were if you had jury duty. You'd want to do this if this was a member of your own family. You would do this if you were utterly and completely independent from a case like this and just watching from afar. You'd want to be able to trust the process. You'd want to be able to do that. And you'd want to be able to believe what the inquiry comes up with and that's why it's meant to be independent that's why it's meant to be oversight but tom just mentioned that that concept and again i got a direct message from a a police officer that says uh that that i've known for eight years okay and uh and i I, you know if if we're gonna play hey there's some bad apples and there's some good guys i'd lean heavily in the direction of the latter okay i'd bet my hands on it and he's there's two main things that he's pointed out. One, there's a real there's a real difficulty 
in speaking up and changing things internally. That seems obvious. That 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 seems observable to anybody who's watching the scenarios in the states right now and watching the scenarios up here with the RCMP. Second factor is, and and this is where I think every cop, regardless of circumstance, okay, regardless of whether they come in with an unconscious bias or even worse, even worse, is that they lack mental health training. They don't. They they are they are walking blindfolded into some situations because they do not have the equipment. They do not do the crisis intervention is not, they're not trained for it. They're not trained specifically enough for these type of situations. You're listening to the bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML from Washington, DC. Reggie, it's always a pleasure having you on. Thank you for making the time to do this. Hey, good morning. Uh, so I know that things weren't I, they weren't settling down in the United States of America uh, post the death of George Floyd, but uh, Floyd. But I would say that they were um, they, they were starting to you know be less uh, less over the top, less less boil less less of the pot boiling. And the death of Rashard Brooks on the weekend, Friday night going into Saturday, and what we saw in Atlanta. Does this have a ripple effect through a lot of major cities in the country now? What would be your expectation? Uh, it does. I mean, look, there were protests that took place across the country over the weekend. There are protests that are taking place right now in the city of Atlanta. There are still protests taking place uh, in Washington, D.C., just not to the level that we saw over the last, uh, say, couple of weeks. But this does go to show that there are still heightened tensions between uh, police, between uh, communities of people of color, uh, and between uh, 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 officials both at the politician level uh, and at the police level, there is just a break and a divide that doesn't appear to be getting any uh, any kind of mending. It's just growing, uh, and these ongoing issues are simply adding to that. What were things like in D.C. on Saturday night? It seemed like that was the one city, along with Atlanta. I mean, uh, the, the, the video on, on CNN, MSNBC, every major reliable news network in the U.S. had it. Uh, what were things like in, in, in the Capitol? Well, we, we still had protests over the weekend. We had arrests over the weekend. We had a, 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 there was an arrest uh, kind of right at the entrance of Black Lives Matter Plaza uh, on Saturday night into early Sunday morning. Uh, but the protest and the anger, it still exists, and it's not simply just going to go away. You know, when I was talking to protesters a couple of weeks ago, uh, they said that they feared that they were going to have to be back out on the streets, despite the fact that they were trying to uh, make sure that this doesn't happen again. And here they are uh, still on the streets, with a new name that they've had to add to their chants, uh, fearing that despite the fact that they're calling for change and they see some of that change happening, it's simply happening far too slow. Yeah. Reggie Cicchini, our guest from Washington, D.C. I did want to switch gears because there was breaking news. I know you mentioned it on Twitter, and it's it's shocking. Sometimes you're not shocked by what comes out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Today, some people are. There was a, a 6-3 to three vote with uh, some right-wing-leaning justices, Gorsuch and Roberts, joining the more liberal justices and making a federal law that, in essence, forbids job discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. There were some states that already offered the protection, but for the states that did not previously, this makes it possible in all 50 states. Um, This is, this again, this is a surprise, but it's certainly groundbreaking at the same time. It is. I mean, look, it's now the law of the land that no longer can you get married uh, to your same-sex partner or be transgender in your workplace on Sunday and then be fired on Monday. That was something that could happen up until two hours ago, and it is no longer something that can take place uh, in this country. Uh, but what is remarkable, as you mentioned, is that there were two more center-to-right-leaning uh, justices on the bench 
who sided with the liberals uh, and gave this not only a victory, an overwhelming victory with that 6-3, uh, the ones dissenting against it, including uh, newly appointed Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, but this is a moment that has really been uh, 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 sought after by members of the LGBTQ2 community, not just for the last few years, not just for the three or four years that some of these have been working their way through lower courts, but for decades now as they've been trying to get uh, the, the Equality Act passed and the Equal Rights Amendment uh, taken care of. This is uh, another step on that way to, uh, you know, just because, you know, you're not a heterosexual in this country doesn't mean you should be treated any differently. And this is a huge win for that community. It is that. Hey, Reggie, thanks for letting us check in with you. I greatly appreciate your perspective there. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, uh Global Television in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it, it's it. You know, there are a lot of people breathing a sigh of relief. It shouldn't have had to come to this. Uh, and it's a major defeat for uh, the Trump administration, um, which tried to provide basically discrimination based on sex, uh, but said that that did not gender identity, sexual orientation. That didn't count. In essence, saying you don't count. So um, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion, John Roberts as well on there, uh, and the much controversial uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who, of course, in the fall of 2018 was put on the Supreme Court bench, uh, went against the process and dissented. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jagged Little Pill turned 25 on Saturday we're going to talk to Alan Cross in a sec. I'm excited to do that. But first, here's Alanis talking about that third album of hers. I'd written with almost 100 different people between the ages of 16 and my having met Glenn at around 19 years old. So I just knew I wasn't going to stop until I was working with someone or sitting across from someone who would allow me the space to be who I was and express exactly what was going on for me in real time. And sitting with Glenn, that was the invitation. He was basically saying, who are you? And let's, you know, both of us were saying, let's have one plus one equal five. And it really did start that way out of the gate with us. All right, that's Ottawa resident Alanis Morissette. 25 years ago, Jagged Little Pill out. I was working in music retail then. The thing flew off the shelves week after week, month after month. Um, Our next guest, of course, musicologist. You can hear him on our friends at uh, 102.1 The Edge tonight at 6 o'clock and every weeknight. And of course, the great series, The Ongoing History of New Music on Sundays between 7 and 8 o'clock. Also the website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. He is Alan Cross. Alan, great to have you on as always. Thanks very much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. I remember hearing this song for the very first time and thinking, wait a second, that's not that Alanis, is it? Uh, I was driving down the 101 freeway in Los Angeles. We were on vacation, and uh, we were listening to the local alternative station. Guy comes on and says, that was Alanis Morissette, and a song called uh, You Ought to Know. And I thought, wait a second, how many people do I know that <laughs> with that name? And then he went on to say that she was from Canada, and I go, no, it can't be the same person. If you go back, and you can find all this stuff online. You can see her, what she was doing for the first two albums, which she was she was a, a, a wannabe pop star. She was something, you know, uh, on, on the, the more conservative side of, of Britney Spears. Uh, like Debbie Gibson at the time, right? Yeah, Debbie Gibson, yeah, yeah. Tiffany, you know, yeah? Typical, typical late 80s, early 90s sort of female pop. And these, these records got a little bit of play across Canada. Certainly nothing, you know, major. And she was just, a, you know, another wannabe pop star. But then she moves to Los Angeles, and she hooks up with this producer named Glenn Ballard, and they spent a lot of time writing songs and woodshedding songs. 
And then it all comes out in the album Jagged Little Pill. And the first single, of course, is You Want to Know. And this is also on Maverick, which is Madonna's record label at the right. time. So it, it, it sort of went along very well with, with Madonna's ethos at the time. Plus, in the middle 90s, so this is 1995, this is June 1995, this record comes out. And you have a lot of really angry, in-your-face, upfront uh, female singers from the alternative world. And there's so many of them. I mean, we start with, you know, Courtney Love and go on down. And yet here comes this woman out of Canada with this unbelievably angry song that so many, well, started with women, certainly, so many women identified with. And then maybe some dudes did on the other side, realizing that you know, maybe we did somebody wrong. And, and the song just exploded. Uh, especially with the uh, you know the lines about uh, you know doing things in the, the movie theater, theater. exactly yeah. yeah yeah where we can't go these days exactly so it was it was it turned into a cultural phenomenon it's really really did so when yeah. I mentioned when I mentioned the numbers I I would never thirty three million of a cop thirty three million copies of Jagged Little Pill sold worldwide sixteen in the U.S. and you mentioned you ought to know I remember the first time I heard it too. But what I'd forgotten about, there were five more top two singles. Uh, there are four straight Canadian number ones right after that. Hand in my pocket, ironic, you learn, and head over feet. So this was not, there are many artists that would that would take the one-hit single and go, there I am, I'm back. But again, this is why we're still talking about this album a quarter century later, is because it was so rich with songs that everybody's heard a million times now. And it was also part of a Canadian renaissance of, of music. Uh, early Throughout the early 90s, uh, everybody had finally realized that Canadians were capable of producing world-class music. And people domestically started going, yeah, this is what we want to listen to. And people internationally started going, wait a second, what's what's happening in Canada? Because let's not forget that at the same time, Jagged Little Pill is going through the roof, so is Come On Over by Shania Twain. And so shortly would be the Titanic soundtrack from Celine Dion. So if you go back and look at the top-selling albums of the 1990s, three of them, are from Canadian women, with Alanis being very near the top. Wow. Uh, it's Alan Cross, our guest, of course, uh, talking about Alanis Morissette's album, Jagged Little Pill, Turning 25. And a lot of artists like to play it this way. They're like, well, I wasn't with the right producer. I wasn't writing the songs I wanted to write. When they see their success kind of wane a little bit, that wasn't necessarily the case. She might have been able to keep putting out sort of you know comfortable pop that would appeal to to 20-year-old girls that would get played at high school dances. But like you said, it was it's one of the great cultural, musical, about-faces probably in our music history. Well, you have to remember that throughout the early 1990s, grunge and alternative music was the thing. That was the cultural driver. Pop had slipped into the back seat after enjoying a very, very strong run throughout the 1980s. got to remember that you know we had Generation X, who was very concerned about their standard of living not equaling or exceeding that of their parents. They were tremendously overeducated for the economy of the day, which had gone into the tank of a terrible recession at the beginning of the, of the 90s. And uh, people were looking for music that expressed what they were hoping and feeling and dreaming and angry and frustrated about. And there, there was a certain, uh, you know, after all the, the hair metal and the pop of, of the 1980s, there was this switch, this about face towards realism, authenticity and honesty. And that's where a lot of grunge music really 
rang true with a lot of people, and that's where Alanis comes along and rings true with that. I mean, there there's so many people, and I I, can, I won't even mm. begin to speak for women. But I I can imagine that so so many women heard that song and went, uh, yeah, that's how <laughs> I feel. And you know, even even guys could listen to that song and go, yeah, that's that's how I feel. And it was just so. I mean, if you listen to it, you can hear the genuine the genuine anger in her delivery and it was it, it, people people identified with it yeah yeah uh it's 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 a remarkable time to to look back on 25 years ago and like you said it you know i thought our music industry was thriving then i thought there were you know great bands h- hitting the road constantly 54 40 the odds the hip were in their prime really coming off uh ro- fully completely into day for night so there was so much it, and it kind of it kind of squashed down to me the CanCon debate I, I remember the brian adams album came out in 91 that wasn't declared CanCon, and then we started kicking that around do we need it do do, do these artists necessarily need this oomph to get on the radio and whether you agree that they do or not Alanis Alanis just went global uh before anybody was going global from Canada like this now I'm I could be mistaken here but I think that you ought to know was a hit internationally before it was a hit in Canada because a lot of radio program directors would have recognized her as, as who she was and um you know who, what she had done in the past and it was like no we're we're, we're passing on this one Again, but then again, things could catch fire, mm. and there's just no ignoring her. Nothing. Tell me the concept. You know what it's like following up a, a, a massive hit. I mentioned Adams and how he had to follow up Reckless. It's it's well documented how Lindsey Buckingham wanted to do something completely different after Rumors. Didn't want to make Rumors Part Two. But I can't imagine. She she took her time. She had toured a long time. Came back with a supposed former infatuation junkie. And I hope in her mind. Um, there was no way there was, this was an album that was virtually impossible to even replicate 70 to 80% of the success of, or the sales of, right? Well, you're, you're, yeah, you're not going to be able to, uh, that's a once in a generation type record it is incredibly difficult. And, you know, and, and after that, she, she, she took three years to write the next record. She took uh, another four years to write the one after that. Uh, nothing was, was ever as big as, as that. In fact, if you talk to guys who run used record stores, and you dare walk in the store with a copy of Jagged Little Pill, <laughs> look up, uh, I got a truckload of those CDs in the back. Yeah, she got, I, you know, it's amazing, though, to re- remember, because I, I was looking at it on Saturday on the actual anniversary, and Glenn Ballard pulled some names, and, and he was well-connected. So Dave Navarro's playing guitar on You Ought to Know. They get Flea in. They both must have been in the Chili Peppers at the same time at that point. They got some big names to come in uh, and do some backup stuff for her. They did, and you know, Russ Bauer is an extremely well-connected guy. He knows exactly what he's he's doing. He can make a, a bunch. Of, he made a bunch of phone calls, and, and uh, he saw something in her uh, that that nobody else did. I mean, most of these sessions were done at his house, and there were only it was just her and 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 Glenn, and they recorded these songs as they were being written. Uh, rough tracks came together with uh, Mo Bauer playing most of the the material uh, and doing most of the programming. Uh, the whole thing, they, they were in a real um, routine where they sought to, to write and record a song a day. So they would spend up to 16 hours working on this record and then just you know go really, really uh, hard on the record. And the, the rule was that each vocal take, and Alanis got one or two. Mm-hmm. The idea was thinking that, okay, 
the 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 maximum amount of emotion is going to come out in those first two tracks. After that, you're going to start overthinking it, and it's just not going to be as good. Uh, so that's what they did, and then they redid everything in a professional studio. Uh, but uh, although the all the instrumentation changed, and that's where they bring in all the studio players, uh, the original demo vocals are the ones that we hear. So the ones that when when she was working with Glenn Ballard at his house, that's what we hear. Those one or two take vocals. Does she get it? She makes this album when she's twenty, and again, it, it was impossible to replicate. Um, she's had a steady career. Does she get it in the in Canadian folklore for for you know when we talk about the greats? Um, does she get her due? Because as you said, she went from a period of being extremely cool to not. And many of your favorite artists, my favorite, you you two went through their uncool period. REM went through their uncool period. She was quite uncool for a while. No no fault of her own. No, I mean when you get that big and everybody loves you and you get tired of hearing the record after a while, it, it's it's a natural career progression. It, it does happen. But now, you know, she is this, um, you know, this 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 elder of, of of the Canadian '90s music, and there was supposed to be a big tour, 25th anniversary tour this year with uh, Garbage and uh, uh, Liz Fair. Liz Fair, thank yeah. you. Yeah, that is that has been canceled. That would have been good. There, there is. Oh my. A, a, yeah. There's a musical. <laughs> it's a musical based on the record. So so now I you know with a a certain amount of time passes you get her to a chance to reevaluate things and and now she's considered to be a a, a genuine you know international treasure and you know good for her and she's also been very up and and, uh, and honest about uh, other issues that she's had including uh, her depression uh, and postpartum issues um, you know she's 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 a, a a dynamic older woman now and um, I think there's should be something coming up fairly soon. Yeah. Uh, the excellent Alan Cross is our guest on the Bill Kelly Show. Greg Brady's here for Bill. I'm All right, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you about a, a rumor, but I think it's got legs based on what happened last week. And I've, I've, I have a friend who's, everyone has a friend, many friends, who are massive Tragically Hip fans. And I've often maintained, and he's like poo-poo the idea, I'm like, at some point, despite, you know, Gord Downey passing away, these guys are phenomenal musicians. They love being on stage. At some point, they're going to want to do music again. So last week, they get back together with their old manager, Jake Gold. Do you see any anything here where they would ever go out with another singer, maybe under the same moniker, maybe under a different moniker? What did you make of, of Jake and the band getting back together? They'd been, they'd been adrift for a lot of different years, and, and the hip had had different management for a good 15, 16 years. Yeah, I talked to Jake about this, and basically what he wants to do is shepherd the band's legacy going forward. I don't think that they would ever agree to go on the road ever again with any other singer other than Gord Downey, and I understand that he's still unavailable. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the idea is to go through the hip's massive archives, and believe me, I've been there, I've played in them, there's so much stuff. How are we going to perpetuate and exploit the hip's legacy and image going forward? Uh, there's still so much more to be gleaned from, from, from this band. There's a lot of un- unreleased material, for example. Somebody still has to write a book about this band. Uh, yeah. you know, is, is there, for example, you know, a, a, a museum exhibit that you could do with all the hip stuff? I, again, they're, they're, they saved everything. And and when you see how well all this stuff has been preserved, it's outstanding. So Jake is going to go in there, and he's going to make sure that whatever uh, you know the hip left behind can be turned into something 
much like we see with, with groups like the Beatles, for example. I mean, they're, they have been together since 1970, but they keep, you know, um, they keep the Beatles alive with reissues, with special editions. Well, I was going to ask about Prince because it's happening a ton since Prince there, passed away, right? The there vault. You go. Yeah. This is, so the idea of, of, of legacy management, of, of estate management, is really important because it's, it's to you know, the, the four surviving members of the band, mm-hmm. to Gord's surviving family, to everybody associated with the group. I mean, you, want, you do not want to see this, this precious, precious thing, which was built up over more than 30 years, uh, not, you know, fade away. So they're not going to do it. They're not going to do what NXS did. You can put that to bed right now. I, I'm pretty sure they could. I mean, I've talked to every member of the band, yeah. and and there is just no. I, I just can't. I can't see it either. I know. I uh, but I, I would think they'd want to play the music. I would think they'd want to be involved in new projects, but probably not together. And, and no way under the same uh, under the same moniker. Alan, I'd love to having you on. Thank you very much for making the time. You're very welcome. Uh, Alan Cross, check him out at journalofmusicalthings.com. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.